0: This is a recording from the University of Virginia's More Than the Score Lecture Series, made possible by the Alumni Education Program in the Office of Engagement. On November 28, 2009, Dr. Anita Clayton held a candid discussion about the similarities and differences between women and men and how they embrace their personal sexuality, including expectations and self image. Clayton is the author of Satisfaction, Women, Sex, and the Quest for Intimacy. Sex matters, right? it really does matter to us and we're going to be talking about some sex matters today and I'm hopefully going to be poking fun at both men and women and talking about how we're similar and we're different. The big picture is we're really much more similar than we are different. Now, I'm sure you thought that sex was easy right? Nobody really tells you how to do it, you figure it out, you get it done and uh, the species goes on. But in fact, it's really, really complicated. There's a biological component, and a lot of that has to do with our physical health, neurobiology, like how do hormones and neurotransmitters work, and endocrine function, among other things. And I'm gonna be talking about biology, too, in the context of um, how we've developed as individuals and teleologically over time. In terms of psychology, it's what's going on in here, and in my book I talked a lot about what happens in women where our biggest sex organ is really the brain. And that's also true for men, although um, you know there are other obvious things externally in men that, that we can see. Um, along with that psychic part <clears throat> is performance anxiety and depression and conditions like that because they tend to negatively affect sexual functioning. There's uh, a big interpersonal aspect to this, obviously relational issues. Quality of relationships makes a big difference. If you have any time between uh, sexual activity, like you spent some time away on business or um, after pregnancy, life stressors and things like that often influence interpersonal uh, relationships. And then there is a big sociocultural Component that is what's happening in society what happens in our family uh, these kinds of things and what these Expectations are and the norms are or what we perceive the norms are and we'll talk about that too Now what what's really different between men and women these are like the three main areas our silhouettes are different I couldn't make these in black but in truth if you look at shapes of men and women from the front or from the side we do look different in general. So men are broader here, women are broader here, men are broader here, women are broader here. Right? So our silhouettes really look different. And especially as we get older, I think that those um, differences may change a bit uh, and we become more similar. Hormone levels are also different because for men, there's one particular hormone sort of driving them. And for women, it's a matter of balance among the sex hormones. In addition for men it's a lot more sort of a steady state. Now you guys peak basically in your 20s and then there's this gradual decline. Women tend to come into their own a bit later than that um, in our 30s and into our 40s so and we change every every day essentially across the menstrual cycle in our reproductive years. So there really are these differences in terms of women changing all the time, and men staying rather rather steady. There are three phases of the sexual response cycle. There's desire, there's arousal, and there's orgasm. And of course, you know, everybody's always thinking about the big O, but the other parts are really important too. In addition, there are really two components to sexual functioning, and this is simplified, so it's really a very complicated process, are sex hormones and neurotransmitters. And some of those are essentially excitatory. They get things moving along, and some of them are inhibitory because you've got to put a stop to it at some point, right? You can't be having, um, being aroused all the time, it actually gets uncomfortable. There are people who have that as a problem. Now, the dominant sex steroid in men is testosterone, right? That's here. And basically, it can drive this system just like a train. Once it gets going, it's going. And it's really, you know, blinders are on. And in fact, a bomb could probably go off in the next room and the guys would be going, we're going to finish here, we're going to finish here, right? The opposite is true for women. We have a balance among estrogen, which probably helps us... um, be, be sort of interested in sex, but this is the real interest in sex, and this helps us be receptive to partner approach. So there's got to be a balance in there. And instead, what, what kind of matters for women more potentially are these neurotransmitters, dopamine and norepinephrine, and they've got to be in balance too. So for women, we tend to get distracted during sexual activity, right? I mean, You could be going along and suddenly you hear a noise in the next room. You're thinking, are the kids up? What's that? Oh, I've got to get them up tomorrow. And then we've got, what have we got to do tomorrow? And we're having sex and we're thinking, what have I got to do tomorrow? What's on the list, right? And that's probably a very good protective mechanism because if you think about it from an evolutionary point of view or a teleological point of view, somebody during sex has got to be paying attention to what's going on outside. Right? And it's not going to be the person riot riding like a train. So it, it makes some sense. The other thing is that testosterone probably gets us thinking about sex, but dopamine gets us doing something about sex. So it's sort of motivated behavior that um, it, it drives. And that makes some sense too, and it helps us stay focused and in the moment. So if that gets suppressed or dropped off, that's not so good for women. And then norepinephrine stimulates generalized arousal overall. You know, you've gotten overexcited before, you know, when something scary happens or something like that. Um, the other things that inhibit, oh, one other thing is oxytocin. Oxytocin is um, a hormone that has to do with letdown, the letdown process and lactation and things like that but it also spikes at the time of orgasm in both men and women. And it's probably the thing that leads to that sort of Woody Allen kind of, I'm going to smoke a cigarette and go to sleep kind of response after sex, right? So it's, it's a very positive thing because it tends to make people who have orgasms together feel closer to each other, all right? And, um, and secure because, frankly, if, if all the guy was interested in was his sexuality, then she might not have an opportunity to have an orgasm. So if he spends more time trying to do that, then she's thinking, this guy's going to stick around, this guy's going to be a part of my life and maybe help take care of the offspring that are going to result from this, right? Two things tend to inhibit sex. Um, Prolactin is one of them, which is a hormone that we have for a variety of reasons, and serotonin. So that's why a lot of the antidepressants that work on serotonin might cause negative problems with sexual functioning. And then this is what's going on in the periphery. It looks complicated, too. The main point is nitric oxide, which is the stuff that drugs like Viagra and Cialis act on, is sort of driving that portion of the system in men. We did the trials with Viagra in women. They worked, but there was such a huge response to placebo in the 40% group, whereas in men it was only 25%. So we're not that different, we're 15% different there. Um, But so instead, there's all these other things playing a role in women, and we're still working on, on what's going on there. In terms of this is basically arousal. Again, serotonin can put the kibosh on things, including stuff like sensation. It can make people feel no sensation, or it can make people feel hyper-sensation, especially hyper-painful kinds of sensation. So serotonin can really have some negative effects on sex. Now, I want to talk about biological factors a little bit. There are um, some genetic studies, a lot of genetic studies are being done in psychiatric um, conditions, and sexual disorders fall under psychiatry. We were the only people that cared about it, I guess, 30 years ago when when we started setting these up, or at least would talk about it. Uh, Anyway, lots of genetic studies going on, and some of these are showing that you can have a certain genotype, and it will set you up to have more interest in sex, potentially, or be able to have an orgasm more easily, or those kinds of things. And we also know that, for example, with the serotonin reuptake inhibitor antidepressants, if you have... There are at least two genotypes that will set you up to have problems there. And they're eightfold worse in women taking oral contraceptives. So oral contraceptives play a role on sexual functioning that's kind of negative most of the time in terms of biology, even though they're freeing women, right, to be able to have sex without worrying about getting pregnant. Lots of illnesses can contribute to sexual dysfunction. In men, you hear about them, cardiovascular disease, Um, diabetes, things like that, contribute to erectile dysfunction. In women, things like depression, anxiety, and urological, you know, bladder problems, urinary incontinence, things like that contribute. And then a lot of substances contribute to sexual dysfunction. So, for example, alcohol might get you a little disinhibited and thinking like you're in the mood for sex, but if you keep drinking, then you're not going to be able to do it. So, and same with cocaine. I'm sure lots of you do cocaine in here. Um, But it's one of those things that immediately gets um, you thinking you're gonna be able to really uh, have a good sexual experience, but chronic use really uh, leads to a negative problems um, with sexual functioning. And then lots of medications can contribute to sexual dysfunction, including things like antihistamines, um, because they tend to dry you out. blood pressure medicines, antidepressants. Uh, So, those are things we need to be aware of. And just to think about this, there is a Murphy's Law for everything, and there is one for Psychopharmacology. The medicine that makes you feel like having sex again keeps you from being able to do it or enjoying it. Because it drops your sex drive, it makes it hard to get aroused, it may block your ability to have an orgasm. Sounds great, doesn't it? All right. I want to tell you a little bit about biology. I don't know how well you can see this. A friend of mine, Kim Wallen, down at the Yerkes Primate Center at Emory, um, has sent me these, so I really appreciate these slides. I've been down there and visited it. They have four different colonies of four different primates. And they um, are following them, evaluating them, using them to study sexual functioning, uh, because they're closely related to us physically. These are rhesus monkeys. What happens is that when the females get into estrus, which means when they get um, biologically told, the signal that they're ready to have sex, they get red in these cheeks, and they get red in these cheeks. Okay, I don't know if you can see it, but they can get really bright red. I mean, it's shockingly red. Then what do they do? They flash it in front of the male. That's what she's doing here. So she's lifted her tail, And she's flashing these cheeks, going, okay, okay, come on, here we go, can you see it? Okay, right? What is he doing though? He's like sitting there looking like, what? Hmm." That doesn't seem to make much sense, does it? It's because there are cultural phenomena too. All right, these are all females. Here's the guy. This one's like sticking your tongue out, saying, don't even think about it, right? He's got to get it right. He can't just jump her when she shows him those pink cheeks, um, because the other females might be saying, no, that's not right, or, you know, you're supposed to be with me, or some other thing. But he's got to negotiate this whole system, and, and he's not sure how to do it, really. So he's looking, okay? He's deciding, but eventually he will try. Okay? Now. There's a counterpart to this in humans. This is the behavioral cue. The woman is at the sink washing dishes. Okay, her rear end of course is facing out. You can't have something behind you at the sink. He's across the room, he's looking, he's thinking, I like that, that looks good, here's the signal, right? He comes over, he starts putting his hands wherever. And she's thinking, what? I'm doing the dishes. Or then she's thinking, oh, my God, another thing to do. <laughs> so when I, I hear a lot about this in my practice. And so what do I tell people? I, I tell him, go over. Don't touch her. Just sort of scoot her over and go, hey, I'll finish this. You go upstairs and get ready for me. OK? Do guys do this? no what's wrong with you guys we can't I know you want it you just want it on your terms right okay interestingly enough the rhesus monkeys get it eventually to some degree and this is you can see her face is really red so so is her 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 other cheeks they're cuddling here though they're grooming they're preening they're sort of hugging they're not they're not really um, doing anything that's biologically toward procreation. And so this goes along with uh, the physical act and for people in particular it's very very important to have not only physical intimacy but emotional intimacy and they they're looking at this also in in the animals And and we obviously do this too. Now there are other evolutionary things that that are interesting um, for example, female youth and attractiveness is associated even without our thinking with high reproductive potential. And the most interesting thing about attractiveness is that it's based on symmetry. Okay, the more symmetrical your face is, like if you put a mirror up to your face, the more symmetrical it is, the more attractive you are perceived by others. Even though we're not thinking about that consciously. Well, in long-term relationships, the more attractive the female is, the more the guy's worried that she's going to have an affair and have a baby by somebody else that he ends up raising without knowing that it's somebody else's. Okay, This is an evolutionary fear. And some people have tried to study this and think it's around 5% of babies. I think that seems really high. but um, So men do certain things, again, without really thinking about them. One, they increase how frequently they have sex because... Basically, if you're having sex with her five days a week, even if she goes out with somebody else one day a week, you've got five times more sperm in there than that other guy. right? So you're not likely to be cuckolded in that way. And also there are these mate retention behaviors where you do certain things to try to hang on to your mate. And some of them are positive and some of them are negative. Direct guarding is basically not letting her go out anywhere without you. So you're always seen with her. And then holding her hand right here, holding your hand. That's a positive, mate retention behavior. Or, you know, putting your arm around them or something like that is saying, um, is sort of guarding, This is, this is or possessive. This is mine, you know, I, I'm with her. It's a demonstration publicly. There are negative inducements like, nobody else would ever want to be with you. I don't know why you would even think that. And then there are positive inducements like, you're so wonderful, you're so beautiful, here's a gift. It's interesting because the higher the, the male status, the more likely he is to use positive kinds of inducements and say, you're great, you're wonderful, here's a gift. Okay. Now, there are a lot of sociocultural effects. I mentioned these before. And there are gender differences, and they differ based on the way the culture is set up. So U.S. culture is actually partner, uh, partner-driven or partner-centered, whereas... Um, some, some other cultures sort of sit in the middle and Asian cultures tend to be the most male centered which tends to be reproductive centered. So cultures that are focused on the male as really dominant tend to be focused on reproduction. Um, so gender expectations differ among those societies in terms of what it's okay for guys to do and what it's okay for women to do. They're still different in this country I would say. There are also religious beliefs that affect us, and these tend to be negative drivers. That is, they tend to say, if you do that, something bad will happen, and so they tend to be guilt-driven. They're not so much like, okay, here's this great thing um, that you're waiting for um, until you get married. There's also family influences. If your mother walked around saying, oh my God, your dad was like on me again, you're likely to have kind of a negative view of sex or if you have this impression, you see your parents sort of cuddling and sneaking off and things like that, you're probably thinking, oh, okay, it's all right to have sex. And th- there are these big differences that you see in families. Sometimes people take away really different ideas anyway than what's actually going on. But there certainly is family influence. And then I think the biggest effect on us, because technology is so huge now, are, is the media. The media does two things. One, it is obsessed with appearances, right? All the people in t- on TV, in movies, they're beautiful. They're thin. They're perfectly shaped. They- and they get there easily, right? That's what we're told. It's just natural for them. Don't believe that for a second. Okay, Most of those people have had multiple surgeries. It is not, or they're in the gym with a personal trainer four to six hours a day. I don't know how many of you could do that, but there's no way I could fit that into my day unless I gave up sleep. So there is this whole obsession, and women tend to buy into it more than men. And we tend to, actually, let me ask this. Among the women, just raise your hand if you don't think that you have a bad feature. Yeah, exactly. Because we all have identified our bad features features, we've, and we've rank-ordered them, right? We know which is our worst bad feature that we think. Um, and and their part, our partners don't think that at all. I mean, this is inside our heads that, that we've created. And we might say, I'm not going to have sex because I don't feel very sexy tonight because I ate that extra piece of cake or something, or I want to turn out the lights because I don't want him to see my feet or whatever it is. Um, guys don't really do that. Guys are like lights on in the morning, you know, in front of the neighbors, whatever, right? The other thing that happens is that, you know, there's a lot of sex on TV and in movies or implied sex anyway. And, and there's this suggestion that, you know, the really sexy people have orgasms from across the room with each other and of course they have multiple orgasms The women every time they have sex and so we get this idea that everyone has better and more sex than I do and like here's examples of it I just went to the grocery store this week and picked up just regular magazines not Cosmo okay this is women's health does that sound like a sex sex uh, magazine no but look here's what it says flat abs now super easy moves Have the baby keep the body, as if she got this, like just delivering the baby and then there she is. Um, Burn more fat, 25 red-hot sex tips. How about this, eat, drink, and still shrink. Right. So the idea is that it's easy to be thin and fit and sexy. Well, then why can't I do it easily, right? So then we feel more like, well, we're not like everybody else. We're not normal. Um, We're a failure. Okay, here's another one. Self. Self. Sounds like more like a brain magazine to me. No. Fit and sexy in 15 minutes a day. Look like a million for as little as a dollar. (laughs) Right. Um, Feel naturally happier. I know that black, one of these was, oh, here it is. You can't see it probably in black. Sweeter sex. And again, okay, yeah, she's very unattractive right there on the... Okay, but it's not only women anymore. No, it's not. Okay, Johnny Depp is the sexiest man alive. Probably, but, you know, do you have to say that? Okay, 110 of the hottest guys on the planet. And then, plus the best chests. Guys, you better be checking it out now. Your chests are important. So you start to see these messages that we're getting all the time that really are are not true, but we believe them, and then we feel that we've failed in some way or we're lacking. Okay, so we end up sort of personally dissatisfied, and that's where the title of my book came from, satisfaction as in can't get no. Um, And a lot of women are dissatisfied, whereas for men, when there's a problem in their sex life, it's, a, it's more like a crisis. It's a bigger deal. It's a bigger thing. Women don't view it as a threat to their womanhood. They just feel sort of dissatisfied and, and um, in, a, in a negative, chronic kind of way. One of the things that we tend to do is put sex low on the priority list. And you know, you can sort of see how that happens. My family comes first, then my work, then our home life, then my extended family. You know so you start to my social life, my baseball team, my, these kinds of things and so we tend to prioritize it lower and lower and the lower it gets the less likely it is to happen right because you only have so many hours in a day just like I'm not going to do six hours of uh, gym work in a day and so this this becomes a problem so in fact we need to identify where we have sex on our list and move it to where we want it to actually be also Um, When we were developing a a number of scales, people told us that the number one reason they thought they were having problems with their desire, their sexual desire anyway, was stress. Well, it turns out it's really not related. Everybody's stressed. Everybody doesn't have problems with their desire, though. But it does contribute in some people. And one of the things is that women tend to have trouble compartmentalizing um, stress. So men could have problems that, now these are all stereotypes, I'm sorry, but just bear with me. Men would tend to have trouble at work, but be able to turn it off or leave it there in order to have sex, right? They can, they can set it aside, they can think separately, that's sort of like that train uh, driving thing. And it, it, there's a good thing about that, because you can let something go, participate in something that you enjoy, and then go back to the thing that's stressful. Women know. We're trying to keep the balls, all of them in the air at the same time, all the time. And unfortunately, then we just feel overwhelmed. Also, we, when we get more stressed, we stop using the strategies that work for us, and we start using bad strategies. So instead of going to the gym and exercising, if you were routinely doing that, or eating healthy, you start eating sort of, um, you know, just what you want, or you start drinking more, doing things like that. So we start doing uh, more negative kinds of behaviors. And then men tend to develop performance anxiety, that is, am I going to be able to um, maintain an erection, am I going to be able to pleasure her, those kinds of things. And people have unreasonable expectations. And one of the things that this contributes to is problems with communication. Because then, when there is something going on in the sexual relationship, we tend not to talk about it. We keep it to ourselves. Because we're afraid of hurting the partner. So as we get older, um, male partners tend to have erectile dysfunction. It goes along with some of the medical conditions I mentioned, some of the medicines. Those tend to come along as we get older. Um, And then that drop in testosterone, finally, after your 50s, is low enough that it could sometimes have an effect. So instead of talking about that when that happens, people just act like it didn't really happen. They don't communicate about it. And then you end up with more and more problems, or he becomes more fearful that that's going to happen the next time. Also, also, men really do want to please their partners. Um, You know, I think sometimes women forget that. And, but instead of telling them how to please them, we do things like fake an orgasm. I mean, how many guys fake orgasms? I've never met one, but, at least that I know of, right? No one's ever told me that. But women do. And once you do that, what's happened is you've said, okay, I'm not going to have an orgasm this time. Because now you're out of the moment. You're not in it. You're even further out than the grocery list. And you're thinking about, okay, how do I time this? What do I do? You know, how do I make it look like I'm having an orgasm? That's totally unfair to the relationship. One, your partner thinks that he's pleased you, and he hasn't. You've not given them the opportunity to do that, and you've basically lied. All of which are destructive to relationships. So I think it's really important for us to communicate about things. and, And failure to do so creates more problems than actually doing it. Now, what are the sort of standard relationship issues? One is desire discrepancy. If you think about it, you can't put two people together and have them both have exactly the same amount of desire. Right? I mean, it just doesn't really happen. Although, when you first start in a relationship, and that has to do with duration of relationship, it's so exciting. Everybody could look like they're about the same. But the longer the duration of the relationship, the more the desire is diminished. Not in a terrible way. It's just not, you know, new and as exciting. I mean, you know each other, right? Um, And so then the desire discrepancy can become more and more evident. The other thing is that periods of abstinence can get in the way. So if somebody has to go for business for a couple of weeks and you've been having sex a couple of times a week and then you go for two weeks without it, sometimes it can be hard to start back up or the six weeks after a baby is delivered. Um, again, if you start to look at that, many, many couples don't start having sex for months after that. Um, And some of that has to do with a lot of fears, but it also has to do with this time away. So if you're spending more time away, and you want to get back to having more sex, you've got to talk about it and make efforts to make it happen, because otherwise it'll just stay not happening. Now, what about desires? You have to really know yourself. You have to know what kinds of things you desire. And some of that is Psychological. What do you want emotionally in terms of closeness, um, intimacy, um, excitement, those kinds of things? But some of them are physical. Women tend not to explore themselves physically, and so they don't often know. When we were doing the Viagra trials in women, we're talking about arousal problems. So we would ask, you know, do do you notice when you get aroused? Do you notice any tingling? in your genital area? Do you notice that it gets engorged or thickened? Do you get vaginally lubricated? Do you get wet? I mean, we used regular terms to talk to people about this. And a lot of women would say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And then they'd come back in the two weeks or so after that and say, OK, I thought about those things you asked me about. Yes, no, no. OK, because before they hadn't even been thinking about that or paying attention to it or doing anything about it. And in fact, um, if we do know those things, then we're much better able to say what we might enjoy. The other thing has to do with some of the ideas, again, that I said are out there, which is that the only real orgasm is a vaginal orgasm. Right? That, uh, that's out there. You know, you sh- women should have orgasms with I- intercourse only the truth really is is you can have orgasms without intercourse in other ways and for some women there needs to be more direct stimulation that's not in the vagina that's clitoral and those kinds of things um, often don't get talked about or women aren't aware of them I had um, a college student a UVA college student come into one of our um, studies where we were trying to validate a scale and she said she thought she had an orgasm Disorder an orgasm problem because she couldn't have an orgasm with her boyfriend Who's 19 she's 19 Well, I mean their sex act was like a minute long And there was very little foreplay and they never repeated it and she could have an orgasm with a vibrator And I said no you do not have an orgasm disorder. You need to work on you guys technique and and That's a very simple solution when you've got an understanding about uh, um, who you are, what you are, and what you want. Being aware of our desires is also important and communicating them to our partner because it's really our responsibility to get pleasure. Now, I think omissions are a lot worse than commissions in terms of communication, and there are data to support this. There are some studies that looked at um, when women revealed information about themselves sexually, it improved not only their sexual relationship with their partner, but it improved their emotional, um, their overall relationship with their partner. So keeping things secret really doesn't help anything. The truth is, though, is women are taught to feel shame in this culture about sexual desires or wanting to have an orgasm or doing something that they think might be a little bit kinky, you know, that everyone else is doing, um, but that we tend to think is kinky. So shame enters into it for women and we tend to keep things to ourselves and not talk about it. The result of not talking about our sexuality means we don't know anything about sexuality, right? We only know what's in the media, so then we believe that stuff instead of knowing that our neighbor or our sister or our friend on the, on the baseball team, they all have the same problems too. Okay, We end up not talking about it very much in a serious kind of way. When you do hear people talking about sex, they're either lying or bragging. <laughs> they're really not just telling the, the truth the way it is. So we've got to think about that in our heads. When we suppress feelings too, that is a lot of our emotional feelings related to what's going on in the relationship, then we tend to build up frustration and resentment. And that applies, too, to our sexual relationship. So we may feel frustrated um, or dissatisfied because we haven't said what we really do want and we're not getting it. But that's our own fault for not talking about it. So really my conclusions are you've got to know yourself. I mean, you're the only person there, really. We're, we're really isolated people that make connections with others. And so we're the only people inside of our heads who, who really know what we're thinking, what we want, what we desire. Once you know what you desire, then you've got to look at all these prohibitions or restrictions that you've adopted or agreed to. If you're saying should or should not, those are somebody else's expectations. And you've got to think about what do you really expect and which of those other expectations do you want to say, no, that, that's really not right. I'm not going to go with that. I'm going to go with this that I what I want. Then you've got to communicate it with your communicate that information with your partner. And if you do that, then you all can work out how you might make that happen. I, I can I can promise you that I I really unless it's something way out there, and, and most of us can identify the the two and a half percent of wild behavior on either end of the bell curve, right? We can really identify that. Otherwise, it's all in the normal range. So if you tell your partner about it, all they can do is say, nah, I don't really want to do that. Or, or, okay, yeah, let's give that a try. Or, Or, all right, I'm in. Something like that. Because in that way, you're at least saying what you want and you might get it if you don't say what you want you're probably not going to get it so communication is really important and then i think that it's likely that we can increase satisfaction and end up with sex lives that we're happy with or at least happier with so i'm gonna oh and there was oh my book yeah just to remind you um we're going to have my book in the back, and I'm happy to sign it um, and sell you copies for $10 dollars a piece. So um, cash or check. No credit cards. And so I'd like to take questions. I know this is a topic that can be hard for people to ask questions about, so if you don't start asking questions, I'm going to start talking some more.: Yes, sir.: You mentioned there were four different uh, groups of monkeys or uh, primates. Were there a variety of? Vast differences among those populations in what you were looking at, this, like this uh, mating behavior, or were they similar? So, the question is Among the four primate groups, are there big differences in the mating behaviors? And there are some differences. For example, some of the other, um, other primate groups don't have like a physical cue, like these bright red cheeks. They have other kinds of cues. But in reality, it's all very similar. It's that she has to be an estrus in order to even stand still for sexual activity. And then he's got to be prepared to do it basically at any time. Interestingly enough, if you look at women, women are the, there's one other thing, the bono or something like that uh, type of animal. But otherwise, we're the only animals we're aware of that will participate in sexual activity at any time. Okay, And, it's, and when you start to look at things like oxytocin, remember I said that's the thing that goes up at orgasm. It also fluctuates across the menstrual cycle in women and is higher at around the time of ovulation, which drives women to be more likely to be interested in sex, to participate in sex, to be satisfied with sex, et cetera, around orgasm. What would be the, I mean around uh, ovulation. What would be the reason for that? Because that's the time she's most likely to get pregnant. So that would carry on the species, right? So it's not an absolute. Women will have sex at other times. We also studied women with premenstrual symptoms and looked at their sexuality. And they're more interested around ovulation. And of course, premenstrually, they're like, don't even talk to me or touch me, right? Because they have premenstrual symptoms. That was quite, kind of like, well, yeah, duh. Big surprise on that one. But if you think about it, maybe that's why we've got premenstrual symptoms. So that women aren't having sex when they're least likely to get pregnant, and it pushes them to have sex when they would be more likely to get pregnant. So more similarities than differences. Yes? Has there been much research uh, to compare and contrast libido and sexuality between men and women based on studying the sexual behavior of lesbian couples versus gay male couples? Um, one of the issues that's, um, that's been a problem in terms of some of the clinical trials we've done is the Food and Drug Administration was really focused on sexual intercourse when the PD-5 inhibitors, drugs like Viagra, were being studied because it was all about being able to maintain an erection for penetration. And they actually defined it as successful sexual intercourse instead of like satisfying or something like that. Um, and so there's been this driver for heterosexual relationships. Some people have been studying this and certainly um, in my book there are a number, of, it's about women so it's not a comparison, but there are a number of cases, there's lots of cases in there of lesbian women and um, and really the sexuality isn't any different. Um, the behaviors may be slightly different, but the, the overall sexuality is really not different. When you look at male um, homosexual Sexuality, it tends to be more frequent, which would make sense. You put two guys together if guy 's desire is higher, maybe that that 's an explanation. But if you look at long term couples, um, uh, there 's really not a difference. So we are starting to include. Uh, lesbians in our studies of clinical trials Uh, but right now there's not a lot of data out there a lot of people the food and drug administration actually thinks maybe that low sexual desire doesn't even exist in men but clearly clearly it does that's a that's a societal prejudice and we need to get over that. A a study showed um, recently, Michael Sand did a study asking a bunch of nurses about their the model of their sexuality and it turns out that two-thirds of the women reported that they had sort of desire, arousal, orgasm and one-third of the women reported that they had not so much desire but they were approached by their partner and they participated in sex for other reasons. So there are several models for desire and what gets it going and whether it exists spontaneously. So I think we we have some work to do on that. Yes, sir. What do you think will be the long-term effect of the easy availability of pornography? Yeah, it's interesting because if you look at there there are people who have certain conditions where they have to take dopamine drugs dopamine active drugs and you can get too much dopamine and it can make people really hypersexual and doing all kinds of things like on the internet um, that they wouldn't normally do and I think that that availability does change things there's always been porn though right there's always been hookers it's not like Um, those things are brand new and actually you can incorporate depending on how you feel pornography into your sexual activity. A lot of people watch believe it or not here in Virginia a lot of people watch movies um, that are erotic to get themselves um, thinking about or prepared or involved in sexual activity with their partner. So I think that there are things we can do with it but it can also be very negative and destructive. Especially if the other partner feels that um, the person who's looking at the pornography really isn't desirous of them, or that somehow they're they're unattractive. So I, I think that there are um, there are pluses and minuses there. Yes. Could you speak a little bit about uh, postmenopausal uh, women's response? Yeah. Um, at the time of menopause, what that signals is failure of the ovaries to function anymore, okay? So now they no longer work. They're not putting out estrogen. They're really not putting out um, progesterone or testosterone. We do still have a little bit of testosterone hanging around coming from the adrenals, and that gets converted into estrogen in the periphery uh, that is like in our outside tissues um, a little bit, So there's a little bit of this, but after about two years, we basically have the lowest levels we're we're going to have, or absence. What happens is then that you don't have the hormones to contribute to the structure um, of structures involved in sexual activity, so the genitals, for example. So you tend to get a lot more um, dryness during sexual activity. It's much more difficult to get aroused, and part of that is because the The vagina becomes atrophic, or um, the cells are just not functional at all. Um, In addition, that may change uh, your desire, and it may also change orgasmic capacity. So you may see a reduction in the frequency of having an orgasm and a reduction in the intensity of having an orgasm in postmenopausal women. Doesn't that all sound like fun? No, it doesn't. So, um there are um there are vaginal creams out there now that are um, related to hormones and we are currently we just um presented data on a non-hormonal product to enhance desire at least in um this is in premenopausal women but we'll be looking at it in postmenopausal women. So, not using a hormone might be very positive or using a non-hormonal product to enhance desire and using a vaginal estrogen to improve um, function in that area is probably the way things are going to go. And there'll be other drugs being developed. Um, Also working on using, using it more often. Again, this like use it or lose it is another issue. So sometimes there are other things that can be done um, dilators are used to make things better, lubricants are used, et cetera. So I, there can be problems, but I think that women should not just assume their sex life is over because they're postmenopausal. that there are things that can be done, and, if, and you should talk to your doctor if um, that's a problem for you, if there's some concern, if it's painful, those kinds of things, because nobody's going to have sex and, or nobody's going to want sex if it's painful to do that. Even you guys wouldn't do that, I don't think. That is, one of the antidepressants was reported to cause painful ejaculation, and I, I, th- I don't think those guys were doing it very much when with that. I'm so glad a woman raised her hand. Now, um, I have a friend who's a counselor, and I want you to speak to what she told me. She said that um, Viper has actually created a lot of unhappiness in older women because it's reactivated men that the women were glad we're dormant because of postmenopausal issues? And I'd like you to speak to that. Yeah, the, the, the comment, really, that to, for me to address is the idea that Viagra also contributed to problems in relationships because there had not been a lot of sexual, sexual um, activity going on in relationships. The men went out and talked to their doctors and got Viagra and then came home, took it, and said, hey, surprise, here, I've got something for you. And some of the women were like, uh, what's that doing here kind of thing. <laughs> and, and so it, one of the things about that is communication is really important. And some of the things that we're doing now in the, in the studies that we're doing is looking at what happens with regard to the partner when one of the, one of the um, partners is treated for a sexual problem and also looking at how they feel about what's going on. So that's very important. Obviously, the person who's affected is the person driving the system, but there certainly are partner effects. And what we've seen is that when you imp- generally, when you improve sexual functioning in one partner, you improve sexual functioning in the, in the related partner. So it, people need to talk about this. Obviously, no one should come home and just go surprise, right? It should be talked about in advance. I'm interested in this. What do you think? I mean, your partners. You 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 talk about whether you're going to buy this lawnmower or not. You you ought to be talking about what you're going to do about somebody's sexual dysfunction. Yes, ma'am. When they were doing the Viagra studies, did they ever do them on the rhesus monkeys? And if so, what was the outcome with the postmenopausal ones? Um, the question is: um, In using Viagra, did that uh, were, were the, was that studied in the rhesus monkeys that I showed you, and what was the outcome in postmenopausal? You know, basically, a lot of these monkeys they make them postmenopausal because one of the interventions they might do is they take out their ovaries and then they give them back hormones in order to track doing certain things to certain hormones. What does that do um, with the animals? As far as I know, they've not studied. Um, Viagra in primates, but I am aware of a study that was just presented again at this meeting in France, the European Society for Sexual Medicine, in which they took marmoset pairs, which is another kind of primate, and they looked at their brain functioning related to sexual activity. And it's really very interesting, because what it shows is that one side of the brain is activated and one side of the brain is suppressed in order to have normal sexual functioning. And when you can't do that, then it, it doesn't work out. So I, I think that we're going to be able to measure what's going on, for example, in the brains of primates and to see what's actually happen, happening in, um, in our brains when we are, are sexual. Uh, but right now we haven't done that. And then we'll look at what happens when we introduce medications um, or drug treatments and see how that changes things. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I guess I I wanted to tie a couple of what I'm hearing as I've read in some of these louder questions, and it has to do with aging. So you're talking about sexual dysfunction. And I'm also hearing, though, as people get older, your desires change or your physical capacities drop off. And I'm just wondering whether it's harmful to be thinking in terms of dysfunction you know, as as you hit your 50s, 60s, 70s, I don't, know, I, don't, I don't know at what point you'd stop saying, it's a dysfunction, it's just normal that you don't, because one of the pressures I think that women may feel, and I'm sure men as well, why do they want to take Viagra, is the feeling that they should still be really super duper active testosterone driven. when right. you're... The question is really talking about um, a, a controversy that's in the sexual medicine area as well, and, we, and that's definitions. I can tell you definitions are the crux of all research, and, it's, and then your hypothesis, of course. But definitions are a problem, and people don't always agree on what definitions are. I tend to think of uh, what's going on when there's an issue in sexuality as either a sexual complaint, which is just an expression of discontent or sexual pain, There's a sexual dysfunction, which is some identifiable disturbance in sexual functioning, um, but may be intermittent or transient or mild and not a problem. And then there's a sexual disorder, which is what, as a psychiatrist, I would make a diagnosis, which is where you've got a sexual dysfunction plus distress. And distress is the whole issue Um, because, in truth, if somebody's desire goes down, and their partner's desire goes down, and they're having sex with this, a frequency that's satisfying to both of them, even if it's none, and nobody's upset about that, that seems normal and not a problem to me. Okay, If somebody is even asexual, meaning that they're, they're never interested in sex, that's normal for them, they're not distressed about it, that's okay. The problem comes in, one, where there's this desire discrepancy I talked about. One partner's sex drive is higher than another's. That can lead to conflict, but that's interpersonal conflict. And then there's the other group who loses something that they used to have that they think is so important, and then they're distressed about that. And so that's really where the problem is. But that's only, when we looked at, we did a large study recently among over 31,000 women and surveyed them and found that it's only about 12% of women have a sexual complaint or disturbance plus distress. So 90% of us don't have that. We just have issues or complaints or struggles or life. And we're trying to work those things out. So I I hope I didn't sound negative because I have had patients tell me, you know, don't have an age prejudice, I'm having sex once a week and I'm 80 and I intend to do it till I drop dead. You know, and, and it's absolutely true and I have other people say we haven't had, we've been married now 40 years, we haven't had sex for the last 10 and we're happy with that. So everybody's different. We don't talk about it so we don't know. But we've got to decide what we want. Remember, if you decide what your desire is, and you know what it is, and you communicate it with your partner, you're much more likely to be satisfied with the situation than if you just keep it to yourself. Yes, ma'am. One more question. I'm going to go with the lady. Sorry. What is the latest research in reversing the anti-depressant Yeah, um, so the question is, what's the latest research in reversing antidepressant side effects? This is one of the areas I've done a lot of work in, and there are some medications out there for other purposes that we use to counteract antidepressant side effects. And um, so things like bupropion or Welbutrin is one of the things we use, and it's an antidepressant, so you could switch someone to that, or you could add it in, for example, to an SSRI if people need the serotonergic effects. Another drug is Buspirone or Buspar, which is an anti-anxiety drug, um, but also tends to counter these sexual side effects, particularly so in women. And in some ways it has a similar mechanism of action to the drug we studied, phlebanserin. only flabanserin has some additional effects. But that might be how it's reversing these effects. Testosterone has been used to reverse these effects. And in fact, in men, Low testosterone is associated with depression. So you may want to give um, testosterone to a a man who's depressed whose testosterone is low, or SSRIs can lower testosterone levels in men and women, and so you may need to supplement testosterone if you can't switch. Switching to an antidepressant less likely to cause sexual dysfunction, obviously, is the simplest and cleanest solution. So there are some alternatives currently available. No drug is approved for that purpose at this point by the Food and Drug Administration. So I'm going to stop there. Thank you all for your attendance and your questions.